to Books and Beyond with your host, Alison. Join us for half an hour of information, entertainment, reading recommendations and beyond. Brought to you by Auckland Libraries. No my Haida my Kiara and welcome to Books and Beyond Literary Lounge with Alison and Enika. Brought to you from our home studios. Kiara Enika. Kiara Alison. So nice to see you. Oh, isn't this good? Good to be back together in the home studio. Look, I'm super excited to tell you what I've been reading um, since it's so long, since we've been in the lit lounge. So um, I'm just going to jump right in. You go for it. I will. Look, I have to tell you about um, the book I have just finished um, by Noelle McCarthy, and it's a memoir called Grand, Becoming My Mother's Daughter, and only just published. Mm. Now, many of our listeners will be familiar with Noelle McCarthy. She's the popular and talented broadcaster, and she's known for that beautiful Irish accent. I'm kind of in love with that myself. Yeah, lovely voice. Yes. Now, Grand is the story of her relationship with her mother, Carol, who, when we meet her at the beginning of the book, um, Mum Carol is in hospital in Cork, Ireland, and she's dying. Uh, She's still relatively young. She's only 65. Mm. And her illness is... Um, due to lifestyle causes, bad luck and, and bad genes. Um, and so Noelle takes us, after we meet Carol, Noelle then takes us back to the beginning of Carol's story and the story of the very fraught mother-daughter relationship. Now, Noelle writes, uh, Mammy was a werewolf. It only took one sip of the drink to change her. Mm. So... Poor Mammy, she had a, a big problem with alcohol. Mm. Now, um, growing up in Ireland was was absolutely chaotic for Noelle. Her Mammy struggled with alcoholism and the, the whole family suffered because of this addiction. And as we know, this is what happens in, in families. We also know that the Irish like to drink, but um, alcoholism sure isn't unique to Ireland. We know we've got a massive binge drinking culture in New Zealand. Zealand. So Noelle was a a teenager in Cork in the 1990s. A lot of people will, um, this will bring back memories for a lot of people. So the 90s, it was all clubs, DJs, pubs, ladette culture, then staying out all night, drinking until you spewed. Um, A lot of people you know, we'll relate to this. Um, maybe we did this in different decades, but a lot of people did this. And, of course, most of us managed to somehow survive these times and then grow out of a lot of these behaviours. Now, poor Noelle is a teen. There's so much shame in her life. Um, at one point, she tries to physically restrain her mum from attending the school's parent-teacher interviews because Mammy's drunk. Aww. And it's so sad. Noelle starts dating a, a really nice boy who lives in a kind of a better part of town. And she's terrified that his uh, parents will want to meet her mummy. Um, and there's so much shame because Noelle's family are, are known to the local police. They're known to the taxi service, the shops, the pubs. And this is all because Carol drinks and turns into a very, very difficult person. 
Now, in a, a review in the, I think it was in the spin-off, um, Rachel King said that the heart of this book includes a, a revelation about lines of women and families and trauma and how trauma has the potential to repeat across the generations. So, yep, and this is, yeah, this is not uncharted territory. Now, Noelle's a bright, really bright kid, and she gets a good degree in English literature. She loves Dracula, and it's her go-to comfort read. Mm. <laughs> she, um, yeah, um, and she moves to New Zealand when she's in her 20s, and you get the feeling that she's trying to escape her demons and the, the, those chains of family dysfunction. And um, even though she she does make quite a splash in broadcasting circles, her here, um, her demons follow her um, because, as we know, happiness isn't a place on the map. And so, along with great success, there's also quite a bit of professional and personal shame for Noel. And much of this stems from spending way too long in the bars and restaurants on Ponsonby Road in Auckland. So. Eventually, Noelle sees the, the writing on the wall. She can see that she's turning into her mother. And so she makes this huge decision to go into recovery. And AA meetings become a lifesaver for her. But um, giving up drinking is, is just the beginning of Noelle's journey. And it's a journey of realisation and reconciliation and you know, working out what's important and, and what sort of authentic life she wants to live. She has numerous trips back home to Ireland and um, there are revelations about her mummy along the way and relationships are repaired and rebalanced, mostly, for the most part. Mm. Now, I tell you what, this memoir is one that packs quite a punch. The writing is exquisite. Um, the, Noelle's references to literature make the book quite meta in a lot of ways. Um, I can guarantee that you're, you're going to laugh, you'll cry. Um, and Noelle and her family will stay with you for quite some time after you finish this book. You know, and as we've talked about before, Inika, on this show, it's a, it's a very brave thing to write a memoir and, and to bear your, your shame and your recovery for all the world to see. But look, I highly recommend this one. It was very, very moving. I'm in the queue, but I'm a long way down. But thank you so much for sharing that, Alison. I can't wait to read this book. And isn't it so true as well that although you're bearing your shame and your recovery, you're also inspiring so many other people to speak their truth, aren't you? Absolutely, yes. And I'm sure it helps with other people's processes and their, their own healing as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. And probably the writers too, I think. Yeah, hopefully. Well, it has been a long time since we got together, um, Alison. I have been reading up a storm, but I have chosen a few books that I wanted to have a chat with you about. And interestingly, one of the next book I'm going to talk to you about it also um, deals with struggles with addiction and um, reckoning with yourself. Um, post-addiction as well. Um, I must admit, though, my two books um, are really, um, they're touching on the mortality. They're touching on the mortal. Mm -hmm. So let's let's talk about the first one. The first book I want to talk to you about is called Plum, and it's by Australian author Brendan Cowell. Um, it's written last year. You'll find it in the Adult Fiction Collection, and it's also on Libby as an e-book, and it's on Borrow Box as an e-audio book. And that 
part, um, the narrated version is read by the author, who's also an actor. So I really highly recommend that you jump into that one if you prefer to listen, um, because it's it's really well done. Sounds good. Yeah. Now, Plum. So Peter the Plum Lum is a 49-year-old former rugby league star. And after a lifetime of hard knocks on and off the field, he now works part-time as an airport baggage truck driver. And uh, only part-time, though. The rest of the time, he's getting completely blotto at the pub with his mates um, in the afternoons. Now, he lives in Cronulla, of course, (laughs) in a house near the beach. He's got an ex-cheerleader for a girlfriend. He's got an ex-wife who's still very close to him, still in emergency contact. And he's got a lovely son who's following fast in his size 13 boots, boot prints. Um, And the son's got a trial lined up for his old man's club, so following in dad's footsteps there. Now, life's pretty sweet for Plum as far as he's concerned, but then he has a medical event in the workplace and um, it puts himself at risk and it puts a lot of other people at risk as well. So it means that he gets put on indefinite leave and when he goes to the doctor, he finds out that actually um, this episode is related to um, uh, his concussion, the multiple concussions he's received um, throughout his life. Um, both on and off the field. Um, so he has concussion-related epilepsy. And this is this is um, actually a diagnosis that is starting to get more um, attention in the media with our um, top rugby, rugby players, isn't it? Yes, it sure is. Yeah, yeah. we're hearing and more about it. Schoolboy rugby as well. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, well, school rugby. I won't say schoolboy rugby since we know how amazing our, our women rugby players <laughs> <Yep>. are. <laughs> um, now, back to the book. <laughs> so he is a straight-talking specialist, and um, she tells him that he's got to lay off the schooners and the steaks and definitely the nose candy because he's getting into a bit of rokey-cokey oh. as well. Goodness. Or, yep, he's going to risk dementia or even worse. Now, this really shakes him. Initially, he can't stop going to the pub because this is where his friends will hang out. There's a, quite a good quote in here when he's starting to think about what this means for him. Um, so I'll just read that out to you. He looked around the bar at other sets of overweight, underloved men, also standing in small circles, lifting beers to their mouths like cult members, up, down, piss it out in and out again, all at differing stages of running from their lives, burying regrets inside the stinking carpets, trying not to think of what would be next. Bankruptcy, prostate, coffin. So, yeah, this this is a little reckoning for him. He has to go. He's stuck on the sidelines, essentially. Um, he really struggles with this, this um, you know, urgent call to for sobriety. And he's also left alone with his thoughts for the first time ever. Usually he's drowning his feelings. Um, you know, he, when he starts to reflect back on his life, of course, his glistening glory days are now tarnished because of all the damage that was done and him realizing all the damage that's been done as a result. He starts to face all these uncomfortable truths as well about his general lifestyle, his relationships with um, his dad when he was a kid, his own son, his current and, uh, you know, ex-partners, and also his own image of himself. You know, he's always in control. He's the invincible plum. He's hero-worshipped um, in his community and and across the nation. Um, This sudden shift in his fortunes finds him pushed to the very edge. But he has a bit of a just-in-time meeting with a a mega fan, um, and this leads Plum into this new job. He becomes a bouncer at a local um, bar or just-started bar. 
and he steps into the world of spoken word poetry because the bar's been used for various purposes. When he's there, he starts meeting all these people, you know, that don't have anything in common with him as far as he's concerned. But, you know, he's absolutely overawed by how brave they are when it comes to getting up on a stage and spilling their guts <laughs> to whoever's, whoever's listening. Now, I don't know if you'll be into this, but Alison, because I know you're not a big on magic realism, but um, there is a bit of magic realism in here. Now, um, Plum starts having these random encounters, encounters or sort of visions, really, with these pop-up poets, and these are poets from the past. So we have a bearded New Yorker propping up the bar called Charles Bukowski. Oh. Um, we have Sylvia Plath with her black mm. sense of humour mm. and daddy issues. And we have the bearded Walt Whitman who urges Plum to get out of nature to fix himself. So, you know, these are all public figures who've experienced trauma in their personal lives and physical and mental trauma and, and you know, been through the ringer. So they come up and they start giving him their advice. Now, will spoken word, sobriety and long dead poets save the plum from himself? Well, I definitely think that you should read this book and find out. It's This is a really close study. It goes below the surface of that often stereotyped, hard-drinking, footy-loving bloke, you know, that lives here as well as in Oz. Mm. And in many countries, of course. And you get to see what's hiding underneath, you know, lots of buried fear and pain, some childhood trauma, and this really strong expectation to conform to this ideal of manhood that um, is very limited. Um, there's a huge amount of empathy for the subject in this book, but it certainly doesn't let um, these types of people off the hook either. Uh, I'll just end with one little quote here, which I thought I'd like to share with you, because um, it says a lot about this type of man. He wondered what to think. What was it men were meant to think? When they were alone, in between doing the things that men do, or even when they were doing them, what did other men consider? And not just on the last day of the year. So this is a New Year's Day, a New Year's Eve quote. Yeah. <laughs> so I think you should get onto this one because I think it could potentially have a series coming on, I feel like, yeah, it's got potential for a TV series. Get into it before somebody else does. It sounds super interesting and actually quite similar to to Noelle's book. Yeah, it's got some shared themes, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, look, um, moving on to something that's um, quite different, uh, really, although I'm sure we could find similarities. Um, I read one um, called My Friend Natalia, and it's by the Finnish author um, whose name is Laura Lindstedt, and it was published just last year. So now this is a book that's been translated from the Finnish language. And our author, Laura Lindstedt, she's a prize-winning um, millennial-adjacent, I would say, writer <laughs> from Finland, still pretty young. And this is her English-language debut. It um, was translated by um, a British translator of um, Finnish and Swedish literature. And he is uh, David Haxton. And he has done, uh, all the reviewers say that he's done a, a superb, a superb job on this one. Now, look, this one is quite an unusual book. I wouldn't go so far as giving it a, a content warning, but um, I would suggest that it's not one that you would read with your nana or or even your mum. Um, or of course, it depends whether you recall mum like you are in a cup. But, um, <laughs> But um, a lot of mums, I wouldn't go there with with this book. 
So yeah, that probably gives you a bit of the picture. Now, the story, um, it follows a, an unnamed uh, narrator um, who's also ungendered, which is sort of interesting. And our narrator is a, a therapist who develops an unusual relationship with a client. And the client is Natalia. So from the moment she first shows up in the office of her therapist, she proves that she's not like any other clients. Um, she's the first one to lie down on the office couch, uh, the first to address this really weird magnetic painting that's hanging in the, the therapy room. She's the, the first one who brings an old-fashioned alarm clock to sessions and then lays it on her stomach as she spins story after story of her of her past. Now, our therapist uh, narrator diagnoses Natalia with um, a condition called hypersexuality and leads her through a, a treatment that the therapist uh, calls layering and this is a guided associative process that apparently you take words from her recollected stories and ask her to create stories that use the words in new ways Mm. and this effect or the effect of this is is meant to drag patients out of their habitual thinking and should result in deep changes to their thought processes. It would be nice if it it worked. um, (laughs) So anyway, Natalia um, writes these new stories and these that get woven into poems, drawings, philosophy and probably most importantly, um, these kind of epiphanies about her sexuality. So as the therapist moves further into Natalia's psyche, um, they begin to wonder what her true motives in seeking therapy might actually be. And um, But I must say, at times I wondered what the therapist's motive, motives were. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the sessions seemed to me to be very inappropriate, and I wondered where all the, the boundaries had gone. Interesting. Um, yeah. Now, um, one reviewer, I thought this was quite funny, said that the novel reads like the, quote, love child of a pornographer and a high theorist. <laughs> so, um, but ultimately, I, I think this is a, um, a novel as much about language as it, as it is about sexuality or psychology. And the, the translator has done a magnificent task um, capturing the, the flourishing Finnish language in English. Um, and really, uh, it's through this very skilled language that we even see in the English translation. We, we see that um, Lindstedt compares the work of therapy to the work of an artist and our narrator the therapist says that if you talk a lot the sorrow might permanently change shape Mm. so yeah I found this to be bawdy beguiling I found it lewd at times and probably a little bit indelicate mm-hmm. I sort of probably make myself sound a bit old-fashioned <laughs> using these words but I did find it intriguing and interesting although for me it was quite disconcerting I was uncomfortable in places in the book but 
we know that a good book is always going to push boundaries and, and get you out of your comfort zone. And um, this one has certainly succeeded in doing just that for me. <laughs> <laughs> so it probably did what a good book should do. Sounds like it. And that was, um, let me see, that was my friend Natalia by Laura Lindstedt. Yeah, that's right. I'll put that in my list. <laughs> Well, my next book is, um, it's, it's, I'm going back to Australia again, and this is a debut novel by an author um, who is First Nations, an Australian called Megan Albany, and the book is called The Very Last List of Vivian Walker, published in 2021. It's one that you can get from an adult fiction collection. Now, interestingly, a bit like your last book, this is um, this one has been a little bit divisive, I saw in reviews. So a lot of people found that they couldn't relate to the main character. But I hope that when you listen to my review that you might um, take a different stance. So I'm going to rip the band-aid of this book off quite fast. When we first meet our main character, Vivian, she's only 40 years old, but she's been diagnosed with stage 4 cancer and she has only months left to live. Quite frankly, Viv's really pissed off about it. Now, she'd always assumed that her really quite average life would eventually get a lot better. But now she knows that there's not enough time, money or wellness left in the kitty to make her wildest dreams a reality. Her study and her jobs never really took much flight. She she hasn't travelled yet. Her house is badly in need of a reno. And she's had a couple of bad relationships. And then when she was around 30, she married the first bloke who came along who she fancied and who wasn't a complete drongo. Now... She's also noticed that about a week or so after her terminal diagnosis, the office of help and lasagna started drying up as people get back into their own busy lives. You know, life stops for no one, not even death, uh, yep. apparently. That's right. Yeah, yeah. But Vivian's always been a list maker and um, she's she's uh, got a lot of attention to detail. And having this extremely final deadline to work towards only ramps up her determination to start ticking off some of the things that have been irking her the most and forever. Now, most of these are deeply practical. These are the things that she doesn't really trust her husband Clint to get done with if she's not around to nag him into it anymore. So you find Viv slapping leftover paint onto the French doors that they hung and failed to paint 15 years ago with no masking tape. She just slaps it on there. <laughs> she um, she sweeps out the fridge, you know, gets rid of all those crusty old condiments so that her mother-in-law can't judge her after oh. she's gone. And then she dives deep into the household admin, gets the taxes paid, and she plans her own slap-up funeral as well. Because she doesn't trust Clint to get that right. Oh, yeah, she's a bit of a control fake, Alvin. Now, we do get to see her warts and all. She's strong. She is fairly snarky. She's got quite a tough exterior, but she's got a bit of a soft spot for some girly things in her life. But mostly she's using sarcasm and the occasional kind of well-deployed stint of sullen mm-hmm. silence to uh, to express herself, but also mostly to express her grief and her frustration at this terrible hand that she's been dealt. I have to say, I found it really refreshing. Often portrayals of the dying are so saintly and kind of holier than thou. Um, I found this a really re- relatable and refreshing take. And when you find out a bit more about her childhood later on the book, I won't go into that, but it does start to make a bit more sense. 
Now, Viv, as I say, is basically over her husband, Clint, and his shortcomings. She's not afraid to let him know that at all. Um, but she does also admit that, you know, they're committed to each other um, and that she's not a really very easy person to live with, even at the best of times. But they both share this fierce love for their darling, sweet-natured son, Ethan. And they are really dedicated to making sure that life continues as normally as possible for him, even as they're going through all these changes. Now, all three make their lists, not just Viv, and each chapter of the book is an item off one of their three lists. So you're actually jumping from character to character. You do spend most of your time with Viv. Um, and so you do get a more of a well-rounded view of Viv through the eyes of those people who love her, despite her many, many flaws and very human flaws, I should say. Now, she's got two best mates, Marsha and Sally, who take, um, they kind of come at it with different um, approaches. Marsha's all bluster and black humour. She texts Viv d- daily to find out if she's dead yet. <laughs> and then she's got Sally, who's like this sort of ray of sunshine, relentlessly positive, and decides that she's going to help Viv settle her spiritual accounts. In particular, she wants to try and reconcile Viv with her estranged mother before it's too late. So there's a bit of that coming in there too. I found this is a really confident, well-written debut. Uh, it's got a really distinct voice, heaps of heart and humour, and definitely some tears, of course. Um, it was inspired by um, having uh, Megan having lost Megan Abbott having lost a number of her friends and families to cancer. Oh, sorry, Megan Albany. Apologies, and in particular by one close friend whose maxim when dying was, "How you live is how you die." Um, I thought this was a really lovely quote that really kind of sums up the book nicely. Um, Viv says, I have lived averagely, loved tepidly, and managed to sometimes get the washing on the line before it started to smell from having been forgotten in the machine. These are not major achievements, yet I am attached to all of them. Now, it has quite a quiet and tender end, which is not what you would expect when you read the the book in the first place. I had a bit of a weep on finishing it, um, and lots of the details have stayed with me. I read it two months ago, and I think that's a really good sign because I've got a mind like a sieve, as you know. (laughs) It sounds amazing, and it sounds so real. It's really real. It's real, and it's raw, and yeah, it doesn't pull any punches, but it's also got some lovely tender spots too. Yeah, I can really relate to that thing about the washing machine. <laughs> oh, dear. In, yes, in fact, that just reminds me. There's something <laughs> I've got to load it in at the moment. Oh, you've got to load on. <laughs> hey, um, I think we've got time. I'll talk um, quickly about um, one that I've read called Voyeur. Um, and you're going to think I'm on a roll here. Um, so Voyeur is written by um, a young British author called Francesca Rees, and it was published last year. So you might think from the title um, and the fact that I, I was talking about my friend Natalia, which was the book Not Suitable for Work, um, that, you know, that I'm on some sort of weird theme. But this is an example of not judging a book by its cover or its title because Voyeur is completely different. It's a different beast to my friend Natalia. So when I say well, completely different. Maybe it's probably not 100% true. Um, this is an, an unsettling book about relationships. And at times I found myself thinking, uh-oh, where is this relationship going? This is starting to get really inappropriate. Um, but it never happened. And the boundaries of good taste, they stayed pretty non-porous, if that's a, a good way of describing them. So... 
Voyeur, it's a coming-of-age novel featuring a young woman called Leah, and she's a university graduate in, in London, and she's pretty aimless and adrift after being burnt by a series of dead-end jobs and internships that had promised so much but had basically delivered nothing. And she's dreaming of being a writer. She goes to Paris and finds work in cafes and finds work teaching English to social media influencers who are actually more interested in the party scene than in any meaningful learning. (laughs) So she's very jaded in Paris and but her heart skips a beat when she spots an advert for a writer seeking an assistant. So the ad goes something like this. Writer seeks assistant to help with archiving research for a new novel. Don't bother to apply if your name is Shakespearean or classical. Uh, situated in Paris and the south of France, part-time. Nice. So... Um, now, I've sort of forgotten what I was going to say. What else can I say about it? So this writer who has put the ad in, he's an older married Englishman called Michael. And Michael was once the bright young star of the, the London literary scene. But he's now a, a really washed up author with writer's blog. Um, and he um, takes uh, Leah on uh he takes her on and then they go uh, with his very dysfunctional extended family <laughs> to the south of France for the summer. And um, she, it doesn't end up going where you think it might go, fortunately, <laughs> because you worry he's a creep. Um, but she makes a lot of discoveries. She finds out a lot about the 1960s party scene in Soho (laughs) and also there's a lot about the history of Europe in the 1960s so look um, I won't tell you much more about it I highly recommend this book Francesca Reese is definitely a writer to watch and um, this was a way of of traveling to to France um, in a time that Many of us aren't travelling. It was was the coolest book I've read for a long time. Oh, awesome. So, look, we've run out of time, so I just really wanted to say to our listeners to thank them for tuning in today. Take care and be kind to yourselves, and we will see you next time. Hi, Reira. Kaki te ano. 